As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, teach us good judgment and knowledge, for we believe in your commandments. You are good and do good. Teach us your statutes so that we may learn to keep your precepts with our whole hearts. Delight in your law and learn your will in Christ. So hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in God's word to 2 Kings chapter 19. 2 Kings chapter 19. Put in the bulletin, we're going to start at verse 8, but I think we'll start at verse 9, and we'll read through uh, this account through verse 37 um, of Hezekiah's prayer and God's answer. So 2 Kings chapter 19, beginning at verse 9, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Now the king heard concerning Tirhaka, king of Cush, behold, he has sent out to fight against you. So he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Resef, and the people of Eden who were in Telosar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hina, or the king of Eva? Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have mocked the Lord. And you have said, with my many chariots, I have gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon. 
I felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered its farthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and I dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops blighted before it is grown. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And this shall be the sign for you. This year eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs of the same. Then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Therefore says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow here or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people rose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god. And Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Uh, well, we've been considering a series through the book of Hebrews, and we reached kind of a, an end section. Maybe you're trying to see what connection this passage would have had to that. Um, it certainly is a story of folly uh, to mock the living God. But I thought what we would do is we have sort of one week, and then next week is Palm Sunday, and I wanted to turn our minds and hearts to think about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And so that left us just kind of one week in the middle here. And so I thought we would take time to think a little bit about prayer, and especially a prayer for desperate times. I think in all we have to do is turn on the news, and, and that's enough to be really discouraged within just a few minutes about what's going on in the world, and to really feel like we are living in many ways in desperate times, and God's people can wonder, what, what ought we to do? How ought we to react? We can feel very powerless in the face of the events that are going on in the world, and I think one of the things that this passage reminds us to do is reminds us to pray, and it reminds us the power that prayer has. And I think when we have desperate times that we are facing, we can look to the desperate times God's people have faced in ages past, and how they have turned to God in their trouble, and how God has answered their prayers. Uh, it's a reminder to us that the strength is really on our side. Uh, the power is all on our side, even when it feels like the whole world is against us. 
That certainly would have been what King Hezekiah felt like in this moment. Uh, This is a moment in history where uh, Israel has been destroyed by Assyria and carried off into captivity. The fortified cities of Judah have been taken, and almost the entire kingdom of Judah has been contracted to Jerusalem. It's the last of the fortified cities, and it's surrounded by a powerful army. And it's well worth you know, going back and reading even more than I read from 2 Kings 18 to get the full picture, the full story of what the Assyrians did in surrounding the city. But in, essentially, they surrounded the city, and what did they say? We've been here a billion times before, and we've surrounded cities. And you know what those cities do? They call out to their gods. And you know what their gods do for them? Nothing. And we have that same thing communicated in this letter we read about where they come and they say, don't let your God deceive you into thinking he can save you. No God has saved his people. No king has been saved by his God. Your God can't save you. Um, in fact, in, in, if you read back in 2 Kings 18, the king of Assyria specifically says, the Lord, Yahweh, cannot save you. Um, and so Hezekiah, what is he to do? This king who can't fight this great army that is with him, what does he do? He goes to God in prayer. Um, and this is a prayer for desperate times. We know that Hezekiah was a good king who came to the throne in bad times, but he was one of the best kings that Israel had following David. Uh, he was a godly king, and he does what godly people should do when they face impossible circumstances, ways they don't know where to go. They should call out to the Lord in prayer. Um, and this is a wonderful reminder to us of, of how prayer works for God's people, that we have a God who hears and answers prayer. And we want to think about this prayer together this morning. I want to look particularly at the posture of his prayer, and then at the parts of his prayer, and then at the power of his prayer. That's what I want to think about this morning. As we learn, what do, how does he pray, and what can we learn from his prayer? I want to think about the posture of his prayer, the parts of his prayer, and the power of his prayer. Um, it would be easy just to leap to the power of the prayer, which is awesome in this passage. Uh, But I think we learn a lot about how to pray from how Hezekiah approaches these things. What is the posture of his prayer? What does he do before he prays? We all adopt a posture when we pray. Um, Boys and girls, your parents will often tell you what when we're going to pray. Hold your hands, close your eyes, bow your heads. Uh, Now, why do we fold our hands? Well, so that we don't fidget so that our hands aren't busy doing something else, distract us from our prayers? Uh, Why do we close our eyes so that we're not distracted? Um, It's a posture of focus, isn't it? Uh, We bow our heads as a sort of posture of humility before our God. Uh, Sometimes we even kneel when we pray uh, to adopt even more of a posture of humility before God as we pray. Um, We all adopt a posture of, When we pray. And so it's worth thinking about what does Hezekiah do when he prays? Um, And what does his posture say about uh, what he does? Well, he receives this letter um, mocking the living God and he reads it. And what does he do? 
We're told in verse 14 that he goes up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Um, He takes this document, and what is the first thing he does? He goes to the temple. Um, He draws near to God. That's the place where God had promised his name dwells. The place where God said, "I, I dwell there. And so it's only right that Hezekiah goes to be near to God. Uh, draws near to him and to his house. And the second thing he does then is to spread out this letter before the Lord. It's probably a a rolled up scroll that he has to spread out um, before the Lord. But why does he spread it out this way? It's a way of putting the offending document before the Lord. um, of, Of setting this offensive document before the Lord. Now it doesn't be, isn't because that's the only way God can read it. Well, that's the only way God can know what's in it. But it's so that as he prays, he can be reminded of what God's enemies have said about him. That he can make that a matter of prayer as he prays. But also I think he spreads it out before the Lord so that he can be reminded of the competing truth claims that are represented by the temple and by this letter. What does the letter say? What is the truth claim being made by the letter? The Lord cannot save you. If he says he can save you, he's deceiving you. You cannot be saved by him. That's what the king of Assyria has said about the living God. The Lord cannot help you. What does the temple say to God's people? The temple, I'm here. I'm near, I'm in your midst, my glory dwells in the midst of my people. Of all the people of the world, this is the place I've made my name to dwell. In 1 Kings 9.3 we read, I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Um, What does the temple say to Hezekiah? The Lord is with you. The Lord of glory dwells in your midst. His eyes are on you. His heart is with you. He is present and he is powerful to save. And what what is the last thing that we see in the posture of Hezekiah as he goes to pray? He goes to God, goes to the temple. He spreads this letter out before the Lord to expose the two competing truths. And then what does he do? He fixes his eyes on what is unseen. He fixes his eyes on what is unseen. They might say, now, Pastor, how do you get there? How do you, how do you know what he was fixing his eyes on? Well, it's revealed to us in the way he prays. Verse 15, he says, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. Um, What is he referring to when he talks about God being enthroned above the cherubim? Well, we know something about the setup of the temple. There was a holy place into which only the priests could go and minister And then there was a veil inside the holy place. And then there was the holy of holies. And inside the holy of holies where only the high priest could go once a year and with blood 
was the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant, there were two cherubim that were facing each other, and their wings reached out to each other, and their heads were bowed. And underneath them, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant was called the Mercy Seat. And God had told His people, I dwell enthroned above the cherubim. They were taught to think of God dwelling in their midst in the holy place. Now Hezekiah had never seen that place. Um, I don't know if we think about this very much, but people heard about the Ark of the Covenant. They read about the Ark of the Covenant in the law. They, They heard about it the way we hear about it. They never saw it. Only the high priest ever saw it. Um, and, and when he saw it, the, the, the Holy of Holies had to be so filled with smoke from the altar of incense, he probably got a hazy picture of it. But Hezekiah had never seen the cherubim, never seen the Holy of Holies, never seen the Ark of the Covenant. But this is a testimony to his faith. Because God said, I dwell enthroned above the cherubim. When you look to the temple, I want you to think of me being enthroned there. That it's the footstool for my feet, but as the living God, I rule and reign here. Amongst my people. And what does does the king do here? He fixes his eyes on, on the Lord enthroned. And makes him his hope. Trust that God's word is true. That when God said he dwells above the cherubim in the midst of his people, he meant it. And Hezekiah appeals to him as the king of all glory who is near. Who is near to his people. He fixes his eyes on what is unseen. In faith in the promises that God has made. And after adopting this posture, then how does he pray? What can we learn from the parts of his prayer? Well, he begins by addressing God. And every word of his prayer in addressing God is important. He addresses God as the one true and powerful God. There's a parallel passage to this in Isaiah 37. And there he addresses God as the Lord of hosts the Lord of armies. What are we reminded of when we pray about God that way? He is the one true and powerful God. Others pretend at power. He has all power. He is the only one who has that power. Hezekiah says, of course those gods wouldn't deliver their king. Those gods of wood and stone, they are no gods. There's only the God. There's only one God who's God of all the kingdoms of heaven and earth. And you are that God. You and you alone. There's only one true and powerful God who is so powerful that he made heaven and earth. Right? You are the God who not only manages the affairs of the world, you brought the world into existence by your word of power. That's why we begin every service reminding us of the help of our God. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. I hope that never becomes so routine to us that we don't meditate on the awesome promise 
contained in that oath. Our help, we are confessing as God's people, is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. There's power to help there. The same power that made the heavens and the earth is there to help. God is the only God, the true and powerful God, who made the heavens and the earth, and he is the covenant God. Sennacherib chose to mock God by his covenant name. I know you serve Yahweh, who's promised he will be your God, and you will be his people, but he cannot deliver you. Hezekiah turns that prayer around, turns that claim around, and calls out to God as the Lord, the God who has made covenant promises to his people. You are the Lord. You are the God of Israel. You are our God. You have promised that you will be our God. You have promised that we will be your people. Uh, We are relying on that covenant promise now. That we will be your people whom you've promised to make your name dwell near to us and to protect and provide for us always. That you dwell in the midst of your people. There's something important about even just how he begins to pray. Um, Our Lord Jesus Christ knew that when his disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Um, How are we to pray? Our Father who art in heaven. What what is that meant to do for God's people? It's meant to remind us who God is for us. It's a precious thing to know that he has promised, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's it's even more precious when he frames that promise by saying, I will be your father and you will be to me my children. It makes it more personal and intimate. We've been adopted into this God's family by the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our father. He cares. He's willing to do all that we need done. And he's our father who is in heaven. That's to draw our attention to the power of the father that we have. Um, Who is not to be thought of as being far from us in the heavens, but powerfully reigning in the heavens. And so what is that meant to, to draw our minds to every single time? We are his children and he is power. That, that wonderful line from the catechism on the providence of the, uh, on the, on the work of the Father, where he, he is able to do all things because he is Almighty God. He is willing to do all this for us because he is a faithful Father. It's so important that our prayers awaken in us this sense that we have a God who is for us, a God who is for us in power. That prayer is not lifted up to a closed-fisted God that we are trying to somehow persuade to open his hand. But a God who delights to hear the prayers of his children and grants us all the good things that we need for body and soul. He's eager to hear the prayers of his people and ready to save. It's a wonderful thing to keep in front of our minds and hearts. Um, 
And in a wonderful way, we have an even surer hope than Hezekiah had because in his day, there was still a veil between him and the Holy of Holies. He couldn't see the throne room of God. He couldn't enter in to the throne room of God, not even the picture of it that was on the earth. What is the promise that's held out to us in the New Testament? Jesus has opened for us a way that we can go right into the Holy of Holies. That veil that used to be there has been torn. That veil has been torn in His flesh on the cross and the way has been opened. And not into the temple that was just a picture of the holy place, but into the true holy place in heaven. We're reminded of that every week in our communion form, in our prayer of thanksgiving that follows communion, that we have, excuse me, we have entered into the Holy of Holies. We have come boldly into the Holy of Holies. And we don't have to do that in fear. The high priest could go in there once a year with blood, but I don't think it was a comfortable entry. He knew that if he was in there the wrong way, he would die. Um, We can go with boldness into the true holy of holies in heaven by the way that Christ has opened for us. We can come right to our Father, right to the one who has all power, who is greater than all, and make our requests known. And it's a wonderful thing that we can do to come before our God, to address Him, and then what do we ask for? Now that we're in His presence, now that we know we're before the one who can do all things, what do we ask for? Well, what does Hezekiah ask for? Um, We might think he would go right where our minds and hearts go. Lord, we're surrounded by a big army. Save us. But actually, he doesn't begin by asking to be saved. What is the real substance of his prayer? Lord, defend your name. He says, this is who you are. This is who we know you to be. And yet your name is being mocked. What is his first prayer? Defend your name. That's his real concern, his primary concern. Your name is being mocked as if you're like the idols of the other nations who are no gods. Defend your name. Let the world know that you alone are God. Don't let this mockery of your name stand. Glorify your name. Glorify your name. This too is how Jesus taught us to pray, isn't it? What is the first petition of the Lord's Prayer? What is the first thing we ask for? What is the first thing we need? Hallowed be thy name. Glorify your name. And that sets everything on its proper footing then in our prayers. It's a a remarkable thing that he in his desperation in the desperate times that faced his kingdom, would still have a concern for the Lord's name and put his prayer in that context. What are we being taught there 
by King Hezekiah and more clearly by King Jesus what it means to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. To be concerned for the Lord above all. And you see how that changes the way he prays even for salvation. He prays for it in terms of the glory of God. I think that teaches us a lot about how to pray. Um, I like meditating on these great prayers in the scriptures because it convicts me about how poor my prayer life is. Um, How sloppy I can get with my petitions. Now, thankfully, I have an intercessor who cleans up my prayers for me before they come before the Father in heaven, Jesus Christ, who is a faithful mediator. Um, But it doesn't hurt if I try to clean them up a little bit as well. What, What can we often just fall into the trap of? You know, Father in heaven, here's all the things I need. And it's not a bad thing because we are a needy people. It's not surprising that we go to God with our needs. He asks us to go to him with our needs. But do we think about our number one need being the glory of his name? And thinking about how we can couch our prayers in terms of the glory of his name. And I'm always impressed by the saints in scripture who pray that way. Who say, yes, we need to be saved, but we need to be saved because otherwise what will people say of your name? Now, what, what if we, we characterized our prayers that way? That when we prayed for healing, we would say, Lord, I'm concerned for your name. People know that I call out to you. And if I'm consumed in this illness, will people say that you were unfaithful to me? That you didn't hear my prayer. That you didn't deliver me. Heal me for your name's sake. And if healing's not your will for me in this, help your name to continue to be glorified through my affliction. Help me to glorify you even in this. How that would change how we lived life, how we prayed, how we thought of the world. It would put God's name and God's kingdom front and center. That's what our Lord is trying to help us to do. By praying first for his glory and for his kingdom and for his will to be done. Recognizing that those things are the things that we truly need. What it will also help us to do is see how closely he has connected his glory to our salvation. Why didn't Hezekiah need to rush forward and say, save us? Before he said, glorify your name. It's because of this. The salvation of God's people is intimately connected to the glory of his name. He's he's attached those things by promising to be our God. He's attached our good to his glory. That's what the gospel has done in a remarkable way. Attach those two things. Howell Jones, one of my former professors, wrote, By the gospel, man's greatest good coincides with God's greatest glory. He's attached our good to his glory by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when God's people say, glorify your name, how does God glorify his name? 
He glorifies his name in the greatest way by saving his people from this present evil age. And so in a wonderful way, the prayer, Father, glorify your name, includes save us. And when we pray, save us, we are praying, Father, glorify your name. By the gospel, those two things have been connected. Our good and God's glory. We don't have to worry about those things being separated anymore. Right? To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Will God save his people? You might as well ask, will he let his glory fade? Right? God will save his people. When we recognize this, prayers like this help to anchor our storm, anchor our lives in the midst of the storms that we face. There's a reason Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seeking his kingdom first, his glory first, means all these things will be added to us. Salvation and glory in God in part in this life and fully in the life to come. That's why it's especially important in desperate times to cast your burden on the Lord, as Psalm 55, 22 says. And he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. As we consider this prayer and we think in the end about the power of his prayer, hardly anything needs to be said about the power of his prayer. Right? He immediately is told, God has heard your prayer and God makes this remarkable pronouncement how he will put a hook in their nose and a bit in their mouth and drag them right back the way they came. 185,000 are wiped out. Sennacherib goes home without saying another word. You notice that his mouth is shut as well. Um, and he goes back to be murdered. Is there power in prayer? Um. The Bible is very clear about that, that there's power in prayer. Peter in 1 Peter 3.12, quoting Psalm 34, said, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. His eyes are on us, and his ears are open. He's listening. He's watching for our prayers. And what happens when we pray? James says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. There's power in prayer, right? People often say that, right? It becomes kind of an often repeated slogan. It can be, we can say it almost so often that we, we stop believing it. But, you know, it's only partially true that there's power in prayer. What does James say? He says there's great power in prayer. There's great power in prayer. Listen to how one commentator describes that word, great power. The word power points to inherent strength. The strength with which makes a person or thing sufficient for the task. It means potency, power waiting to be released. We might speak of untapped resources. In our world, unpromising tracts of land hide rich deposits of minerals. Gray seas cover a wealth of natural gas. Such is the picture suggested by the word, not the unpromising appearance, but the hidden power. So it is with prayer. It looks unimpressive and is easy to despise. 
but it has great resources waiting to be tapped, a huge potency to release. That's why if we understood prayer better, we wouldn't use it the way we tend to, which is put it in a box and mark it, break the glass in case of emergency. And when everything else is desperate and we're at the end of our rope, we say, okay, well, I guess it's time to pray about this. If we understood the great power there was in prayer, it would be the first thing we do. And, in, and the wise people who have gone before us knew that, that it was the first thing to do. Um, in our church order, as they list the offices or the duties of every officer, the first duty of all of them is the same, to be continuing in prayer. They recognize the importance of prayer. I remember reading a book on pastoral ministry in seminary where someone said, you know, we, we today have much better education in the ministry, we have more resources in the ministry, and yet we seem not to be sometimes as effective as the people that came before us, even though they didn't have the same education, they didn't have the same, you know, resources and, and schooling. What, what made all the difference? And one older minister said, unction. They were men of prayer. They prayed in a way we don't pray. And then we're surprised when we don't have the power that they had. There's great power in prayer as it's working. Not just potential power, but effective power as it's working. Right? It's not just power waiting to be released. It's power that's great as it works. And we know there's a difference between potential power and the power as it's working. Think of a race car. You might, you might hear it turned on and say, oh, that has a lot of power. But it'd be different to sit in that race car and to hit the accelerator and to feel the power as it's working. I was reading an article that was talking about you know, the great punchers of boxing history, and they said Mike Tyson had great power in his punch. It's one thing to read an article about it. It's another thing for him to punch you in the mouth. It's one thing to feel that great power working. I got a quote from a guy who fought him. who said, I threw a jab, and I don't remember anything after that until I woke up in the locker room. There's a difference, right, between power and power as it's working. James says prayer has great power as it's working. There's power there. There's power in the prayers of the righteous. And James is not talking about extraordinarily righteous people. He says Elijah was a man with a like nature of ours. A righteous person for, for James just means an ordinary believer, someone who has true faith. Why does, why does someone of true faith have great power in their prayers? Because we have a God who's listening. And a God who's powerful to grant our prayers. Especially so that we think about that in confident ways. How does John want us to think about prayer in 1 John 5.14? And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That we, if we ask of anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we ask of him. That's why it's important always to pray, thy will be done. He knows better what our will is, but it should never detract from our notion that there's great power. We have a God who's listening. If you ever doubt that God is listening, go back and read 2 Kings again. God is listening to the prayers of his people. That's why we have a kingdom that can't be shaken. 
our kingdom can't be shaken because it was forged by the victory of Christ on the cross and it's sustained by the great and effective power of the prayers of our king. Think Hezekiah's prayers had power? Think about how Christ's prayers have power when he ever lives to intercede for his people. Even in desperate times, don't despair, people of God. Walk around and be mindful of the kingdom that we have. Do what Psalm 48 directs us to do. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a great God for your people and a God who hears prayer. We confess, Lord, that too often we do not come to you with our prayers as we ought. We don't seek first the kingdom of God and we come to you only in the midst of our desperation, Lord. We pray that you would help us to come to you early and often in desperate times, uh, that we would be a people that would always be continuing in prayer. We thank you for all the people in our church who are so faithful in praying for one another. We pray that you would help them to be reminded that they don't do that in vain, that their prayers have great power as they're working. Um, So Lord, we submit all things to your will and then help us pray for boldness for all that we need for body and soul, knowing that you will uh, help to give us all things that we need and that you are there as our God always. So hear us and help us, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen.